Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. We'll go to uh, 1 John chapter number 2. 1 John chapter number 2. And we are going to go through the end of chapter 2, a couple verses, and then the first 10 verses of chapter number 3. And if I had to pick a title for this, I would just call it, Am I a Child of God? And I want to actually start by reading together chapter 3, verse number 10, which says this statement to start the verse. It says, In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Now that's, that's an interesting statement. But John says, in this, it is made abundant, it is made clear, it is made manifest who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Now, I, I want to know what he just said to help me know which category I'm in, right? Uh, the whole point of 1 John is to give us confidence before God. It is to help us know, do I, should I be able to know? that I have eternal life? Should I be able to know that my sins are forgiven? Should I be able to know that heaven is my home, that uh, God is my God, that he really is my father? Can I have confidence? And John says, yes, you can have confidence if you can answer these questions in the affirmative. And he gives us these tests, right? Every week we've said there are moral tests on how we live. There are social tests on how we love. There are doctrinal tests on, on what we believe. Last week was doctrinal, today is moral, next week will be social, but today will be a, a moral test on this is how you live if you're a Christian. It's, it's broad brush, but it's enough for us to be able to put it to our own lives and say, is that true of me or not? If it is, I should have some measure of confidence. If it is not, then I should get saved and I should not be confident. So here we go, uh, chapter 2, verse number 28. Let's read it together. Now... Little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. See the confidence he wants you to have? Verse 29, if ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that do, does righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved... Now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has his hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he's born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth his brother. 
There's a lot to unpack in this text as is fitting for John's writings. But I want us just to try to get the main thrust of this passage. And I want to start just by answering a a question that John answers, at least in part, of who's Jesus? John told us in previous uh, chapters that Jesus was the Christ. He was the anointed or appointed one. He told us that Jesus was the Son of God. He told us that Jesus uh, was God in the flesh, that the incarnation happened. But here he gives us another layer to who Jesus is. And he says this in verse 29. He says that he is righteous. In verse 3 of chapter 3, he says Jesus is pure. Uh, Verse number 5, he says this, in him is no sin. Verse 7, he is righteous. He says four times in in the span of this portion of Scripture that Jesus is the righteous one, Jesus is the pure one, Jesus is the sinless one, in him is no sin. Now, you tell me, not a trick question, who wrote the epistle of first john what was the name of the guy that wrote the epistle of first john what's his name a very good okay you're you're smart class john was his name now why is this important john was humanly speaking jesus's best friend right so there's a lot of people that follow jesus there's a special group of 12 that are the disciples There's a special group of three within the disciples that are kind of the inner circle that have access to certain teachings or certain events that the others didn't have access to, Peter, James, and John. And then there's one John who's known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who would actually like lay his head on his shoulder like they were very close, even affectionate. John is the one disciple who shows back up at the crucifixion, right? Jesus is, uh, he's captured for lack of a better term he's put on trial the disciples run like scared little rabbits but john shows back up at the cross with the women and he's there when jesus is there on the cross on his deathbed so to speak he looks at john and says john there's my mother mary take care of her like that's that's a special guy When you're on your deathbed and you say, hey, here's my wife or here's my mom, I want you to take care of them, you don't hand the the baton to just anybody in that moment. Jesus hands this to John. And John says, Jesus is sinless. Jesus is pure. Jesus was righteous. That's how he describes Jesus. So when you, this this is important. Because when you have your mother who worships you and your brother who puts his faith and trust in you and says Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, and your best friend says you're perfect, that doesn't happen very often. I don't know if you knew this. Now, you may find some mothers that have this, you know, this uncanny ability to see no fault in their children. Okay, maybe. But my best friend says, perfect? Mom worshiped your brother? says you're the Lord and, and you're my Savior and I put my faith and my, and my trust in you, you know what I know. As you get closer to somebody, the Wizard of Oz effect happens, right? You see them from a distance and it may be that you admire them or maybe you're even enamored with them. And as you get a little bit closer, perhaps your admiration increases. But as you get closer and closer and closer, there comes this point to where the admiration doesn't increase all that much any longer, but now you see behind the curtain and you realize just how human they actually are, right? You know what I'm talking about? I see this all the time in romantic relationships, right? Boy meets girl. 
boy is Twitterpated, boy is lovestruck, boy is shot with Cupid's arrow through the heart, and he says, you know, she is beautiful, and her personality is beautiful, and her character is beautiful, and I, like, I just want to know her and spend time with her. So he sets out to woo her away from every other man on the planet, including her dad, which is a tall order, right? And if you are lucky enough and deceptive enough, you can, you can figure this out. No, I'm kidding, guys. Uh, but you set out on this, right? And oftentimes, girl will respond to the pursuit of boy. And she will begin to admire him and say, man, he's, he's amazing, man. Maybe he's marriage material. And all of a sudden, they get engaged. And they come to me and they say, Pastor, we're engaged. Uh, we're doing this wedding. Would you marry us? Say, yeah, I'd love to marry you, but let's do some premarital counseling first. And we sit down in premarital counseling, and there he sits, and there she sits, and they're right next to each other, and they're looking at each other, and they have love in their eyes. I mean, it's just dripping out of their eyes. And they, they're, they're holding hands, and, and we're talking. And I say, okay, tell me, what is it that she does that infuriates you? Nothing. <laughs> She's my soulmate, you know? Okay, tell me, what is it that he does? What, what habits th- does he have that annoy you? None. There, there are none. Like, we were made for each other, right? And then they get married. And I don't know if it's a week or if it's six months or if it's a year. It's normally not longer than a year. I can promise you that. Like, like a comet streaking towards earth. Reality is streaking towards that couple. But there is going to come a day where he's no longer your favorite person on the planet. But he is your least favorite person on the planet, right? Where all that love gets turned sideways, and now it feels like betrayal, and now it feels like, how I loved you so much, how could you possibly say that to me? How could you possibly do that to me? And all of a sudden, now, like, if you had a hit list, they're, they're on the top of it that day. Like, if I could kill anyone today and have no consequences, you would be it, right? How, married, how many married people would be brave enough to attest to the reality of what I speak of, right? This, this is true. This is true. And all of a sudden, you begin to ask yourself, man, are, are we broken? No, you're not broken. You, you were blinded before, okay? That's all it was. You are now close enough to peek behind the curtain and to see the Wizard of Oz effect has happened. Oh, my goodness, I'm not, I'm not enamored any longer. They're human and they have problems, right? And the point is that John was as close as you could possibly get. When you have your brother and your mother and your best friend who are worshiping you and saying that you're sinless and saying that you're the Savior and that you were God in the flesh, like, that doesn't happen. But this is John who says he's the pure one. Jesus is the righteous one. In him was no sin. And then he says, here's why Jesus came, which is an awesome statement. He says in verse number five, he came to effectively remove human sins. And you know that he was, excuse me, he was manifested to take away our sins. This is very similar to what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What is he saying? He's saying, God made a house call to the sick sinners. He came down. He put on flesh. He was manifest. He came to save us from our sins. Now, this is why the sinless part is so important. Because how is he going to take my punishment for my sins if he has sins of his own to pay for? If, if you are on trial for murder and the judge finds you guilty and says that you are sentenced to prison for life, 
And then the guy after you is on trial for murder. And he's found guilty. And he's sentenced to prison for life. And he says, I'll take Mark's place, okay? I'll, I'll take his punishment. No, you have your own punishment to pay for. You're not taking my life sentence. You already have a life sentence. You have to pay for it. It doesn't work that way. Jesus can't take our sins. Jesus can't pay for our sins. Jesus can't do this if he has his own sins to pay for. But the Bible teaches very clearly that he is righteous. He is sinless. There are no sins of his to pay for, and sins have to be paid for. The justice of God will not allow him to do anything less. He can't just say, oh, here's some you know, magic pixie dust, and they're all gone. Poof. No, they, they have to be paid for. So Jesus goes to the cross and satisfies the justice of God, satisfies the wrath of God, takes our place, takes our punishment, takes our shame, takes our scorn, takes our scars, takes it, and pays for our sins. He was manifest. Why was Jesus manifest? He was manifest so that sins would be removed. Here's how verse 8 says it. It says something very similar. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Okay, why? Why the incarnation? Why Christmas? Well, that he might destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Beginning of the verse. The devil sinneth from the beginning. Here's what it's saying. Jesus came, the righteous one, the perfect one, the pure one. He came. It's a gospel. He came to deliver us from our sins. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Not literally annihilate, but to, but to undo. To make of no effect to take Satan's best laid plans and ruin them all and to destroy those works. And here's what it says about us. It says, here's Jesus, the righteous one. Here's Jesus and why he came. But then it turns the corner and says, okay, so there's an application and an implication for Christians. There's a test that pops up now for us if you're a follower of Jesus and it says, here's who Christians are. There's something that's been done for them and there's something that's done by them. And I want to start with done by them because it's the part that will really throw you for a loop and it will make you either ask, you know, answer the question, okay, I'm saved and I know it, or I'm not. And here's what he says. There's, there's something that's done by Christians. Look at verse number 29. We know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. All right, let's reverse engineer that. If you're born of him, you do righteousness. Verse number 7 of chapter 3, little children, don't let anybody deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So on one hand, we do righteousness, the presence of the positive. On the other hand, verse number 6, these are the scary verses. Whosoever abideth in him sins not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither knoweth him. Verse number 9, in case you thought that was a typo. In case John just, you know, had a fit of temporary insanity. Verse 9, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. All right, what do we do with that? Here's the moral test. Christians don't sin. Christians do righteousness. That's what he said. I'm not going to read it again because I, I think you, you heard it. But in case you doubt me, read it again. That's what he says. Now, does this pose a problem for anybody? How many of you would join me in confessing today that in the last seven days, you've done a little sin? Anyone ever done something that was not righteous? You had a thought that wasn't righteous? You had a deed that wasn't righteous, right? 
man, are we Christians? Christians do righteousness. Christians don't sin. His seed's in us. We can't sin. This, this seems like a face value that this is saying Christians live perfect lives. Christians don't sin. Now, is he saying that? And the answer is no. Why is the answer no? Well, because I want it to be no. No, that's not why. I do want it to be no because that's, uh, uh, it's bad news for me if it's yes. There's a, there's a contextual reason, but then there's also a technical reason, okay? So the contextual reason, this is why we study the Bible in context, and we don't just take verses and rip them out and just preach them all by themselves, d- departed from the context. Because if all you had of the Bible was 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 and 9, you better be real worried. But we have the whole book of 1 John, right? We have the whole Bible in the first place. We have the whole book of 1 John. What did John say in chapter number 1? If we Christians confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? The audience was Christian people. You can confess your sin. What did he say in chapter 2? I'm writing this to you that you sin not, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? We just read in chapter number 3, if you have this hope in you, you purify yourself even as he is pure. I cannot purify myself if I'm completely pure right? So the chapter after chapter, it's never stated, you will not sin, you will be perfect, period. It tells you, you can confess your sin, it tells you if you do mess up, I don't want you to, but if you do, you have an advocate. It tells you, you have to purify yourself. All of them indicating that we will not live completely perfect, clean lives. So if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? And that's where the technical side comes in. When it says that we will not sin, it, it's, a, it's a Greek word that means sin and keep on sinning. It means kind of linear action. You keep sinning. So what, what John is saying to you is simply this. And this is still, it's going to make you think and make you, it should make you ask yourself the question, am I saved? But what he's saying is there will not be a way of life, a pattern, these unbroken, prevailing, habitual patterns of sin that never stop and never break. Now, I'm not saying you don't have a besetting sin, that you don't have a sin that you have to struggle hard against and sometimes it gets the better of you. But he is saying that a, a believer, although he may fall into sin, a believer will not just walk in his sin or her sin. That if Jesus lived a life of righteousness and Jesus was perfect and sinless, then we as his followers are wanting to trend in that direction and, and walk down that same road, and that is our aim. That we want to live lives of righteousness. We want to live lives that are, that are close and clean. We abide in Jesus, close. We do not sin, clean. That, that is what we do. And if, if a believer has unbroken, habitual patterns of sin that are just, there's never conviction, there's never warring against it, the, the sin just pushes you down and pushes you down and pushes you down, and you never get back up and, and push it back, and, and, there's, and there's not this effort to kill off that sin in your life, that there's a problem. If you got saved 10 years ago, and 10 years later, you're the same, the character hasn't developed, the, the, the sins that you struggled with are still the same, maybe even worse. If, if, that's, if that's the case, then you should naturally ask yourself, is the nature of God in me? Does the Holy Spirit of God reside within me? 
Am I really a Christian? And the apostle will state with absolute clarity that those who live in these unbroken patterns of habitual sin do not know Christ. They have not seen Christ. They do not have a saving relationship with Jesus. That's what he says. Now, if that throws you into a tailspin, sorry, not sorry. That's what he says. Now, pastor, when does my sin become habitual sin? When does my habitual sin become an unbroken pattern of habitual sin? I don't know that I can answer that exactly, okay? But here's what I can say. There is inside of Christians, there's, there's a new nature in you. You are born of God, he says. Being, being born again is not like a special version of Christians. Like there's Christians and then there's born-again Christians who are born of God who have like special access to powers and, and, and they can really fight the sin in their life. No, 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 no. It's not like, well, there's sailors in the Navy and then there's the Navy SEALs and they're a special group. Some people think born-again Christians are a special group of Christians. They're not. Every Christian is born again or born of God if you really are a Christian. And if his DNA, if his nature, if you're born of him, then there is inside of you something pushing and propelling you to pursue righteousness and holiness and, and to live for Jesus. The, if, if I could illustrate it this way, the Nile River is the longest river on the planet. It's over 4,000 miles, and is, it is the only river of consequence that flows from south to north. Now, it doesn't flow uphill, so don't misunderstand that, but it does flow from south to north. But there are moments in the Nile River, even though it is flowing from south to north, there are moments where it will jog maybe to the west, and it will turn so far to the west that it will begin to flow south. But then it will turn back, and it will begin to flow north. And the truth of Christians is that we have lives that flow north, even though there may be jogs in the river that flow south for, for brief periods of time, the trajectory is still that we flow north that we do purify ourselves, that we do struggle hard against sin. So here's just a bottom shelf application of this text. If you're a Christian, just ask yourself, is there something in my life that I need to set down that is sin, that is unrighteous, that is wrong? Whether you think it's small potatoes or not, it's wrong. Covetousness, discontent, greed, gossip, pride, whatever, that I need to set down and be done with? Or is there righteousness I need to pursue, right? It's not just the absence of the negative, it's the presence of the positive. Is there something I need to pick up? Or maybe I have picked it up, but I need to intensify. That I, I should be, hey, I could have a better prayer life. And we all could, I know. I don't want to guilt trip you. We all could have a better prayer life, I'm sure. You know what? Man, it's been a long time since I've fasted. I, I need to pursue that. Hey, uh, I'm going to give a little bit extra this week. I need to look for someone to mentor. I need to dive a little bit deeper into discipleship. I want, I want my praise and, and worship of the Lord to be more meaningful. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to try to, from the heart, sing with grace in my heart. And I just go through the motions of church. Is there something that you need to put down? Is there something that you need to pick up? Because Christians are people who are setting down the sin and are picking up the righteousness. Because Jesus had no sin but had righteousness. That's the bottom line. And if you take that and you start to apply it to your life and you, and you say, you know what, that does not describe me, then John is bold enough to say, 
you're not born of him. You're not a child of God. Not that you can't be. Become a child of God, right? Into the, into the book. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. But he says, if you don't believe, then believe on the name of the Son. So that doesn't describe you, then be saved today. And my goal today is, is if, you, if you have doubts that plague you and you're legitimately saved, then I want you to do away with those doubts and I want you to have confidence. But if you're confident because granny told you you prayed a prayer or the VBS worker uh, said, said that you, know, you, you did the right thing or you walked the aisle and somehow you have confidence, but really you're not saved and you should have doubt, then I want you to have doubt. I want you to have what the Bible would say, that I know that I'm saved or not, one or the other. And here's what it says, Christians are people who do some things. We pursue righteousness, and we pursue killing off the sin in our life. But he also says that Christians, this is interesting, Christians are people who have something that's not just done by them, but done really to them and for them. And this is, is the beginning of chapter number three. Here's what he says, behold. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now, it's difficult for me to read this with the tone I think it's deserving of because this is an off-the-charts moment for John. This is a superlative, like, heart is bursting off the page. When you see what manner, anytime you see that uh, in the Bible, it always implies astonishment or wonder or awe or amazement. That John is saying, like, look at this. What kind of love that God would love me and God would make me his child. Like, this is wondrous to me. This is amazing to me. This is awe-inspiring to me that God would do this to me. And we know something about love. We know parent-to-child love. We know uh, even children to, to parental love and just how charming and beautiful that can be. We know sibling love and how deep that can be, but this is the love of the creator to his creation. This is the love of God to humankind. And John says, because of this love, I'm made the child of God. Now, there's three ways into a family, in, in biblically and in, in just real life. There's life, law, and love. Life, you're born into the family. Law, you're adopted into the family. Love, you're married into the family. And what you have in Jesus is all three. That you, you have us coming into the family of God via Jesus loving the church, the bride and the groom analogy. You have us being adopted as sons and we're able to, to cry, Abba, Father, by the spirit of adoption. You also have what this is talking about, life, that you're born of God. You're born again. There's a new nature now that, that you possess because you're born of him. And then he says this in verse number two. Now, don't miss this. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. So I haven't arrived yet. It's, it's, I'm not there yet. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, I could preach a series of sermons on every phrase of that verse. But simply put, what John is saying is, it's not just, I'll put it this way. There's mind, will, and emotions. There is a mind part. There's doctrine that we have to know, for sure. There is a will part that we have to kill off the sin in our lives. We need the, the gracious aid of the Holy Spirit to do this, but we kill off the sin in our lives, we work at it, we pick up righteousness, and, and we don't just float down the spiritual lazy river. But there's also an emotional part, and this is this moment, 
where John is saying, look at the love. Look at what God would do for me. And he says, think about, think about, I haven't arrived yet, but think about, I will one day, that I will be made like him one day, that I will have a glorified body, that my sin nature will be gone, that that day is coming. And John is using this as a catalyst and as fuel to, to really get him to the point of where he needs to be to be able to kill off the sin in his life. And we'll see this in verse 3. But he's saying, think about, think about what we will be. Think about what Jesus is doing for us now, but is going to do for us. And I don't know exactly how all this, us being made into the likeness of Jesus is going to transpire. I I know that it will be quick, according to the Bible. But the way that I picture it in my head, and this may be the worst way to picture it and be completely different, but I picture Beauty and the Beast, okay? If you've ever seen Beauty and the Beast, you know at the end of the movie, the beast he, he, like, he floats in the air, and he begins to twirl, and radiant light starts to like pop out of his chest. And then all of a sudden, he's no longer a beast, but he comes down, suave and debonair and blonde hair. And I don't know if he's a prince or not, but there he is, right? And I don't know if this is how it will take place, if like light beams will shoot through us and we'll sp- you know, spin in the air, and, and that will happen. But I know this much, the beast will be gone, right? That where we want to be, we're purifying ourselves even as he is pure, but we, we're not completely pure, we're not completely righteous, and we still do struggle with sin, and that is there. But we will be changed. The mortal will put on immortality, and, and the corruptible will put on incorruption, right? That's what he's talking about. Think about that. And he says in verse 3, it's amazing that every man that has his hope inside of himself, he purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. What, what he says explicitly is that when you, when you allow the love of God to come through you like a lightning bolt hitting a lightning rod, when you begin to behold what kind of love is this, that he would love us, that he would, that he would allow us to be in the family, that he's going to change us, when you begin to meditate on that, when you begin to think about that, that this hope begins to purify you and begins to change you. It's so, the experience will be so powerful then that just to think about it today changes you. And you can't disconnect these two. You can't just say, okay, Christians are people that do some stuff. Ugh, twist my arm behind my own back. I'm going to go do some stuff. I'm going to kill some sins. Give, give me the rifle. I'm going I'm to hunt it down. I'm going I'm I'm to scavenger hunt some righteousness. I'm going to pick some up. I'm just going to do it. Okay, I love the spirit. If sin's pushing you around, get up and push it back. But understand that you need to have the sense of, well, there's been something done for me. He loves me. He gave himself for me. That I can only be righteous if I'm born of God, right? Remember he said that in verse number 28, 29? That he that does righteousness is born of God. I'm not going to be able to do righteousness on my own. I have to be born of God for this to happen. I have to be born again. I need a miracle. And God has done a miracle in redemption and salvation, so let's celebrate that. Let's think about that. Let's let's meditate on that, and let's allow that to drive us. Why? So that we can be righteous. John says those are Christian people. Those are people who have a sense of the beauty and the majesty and the glory of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And those people are people who live lives of holiness. Now, we're going to take communion this morning. I hope that you got one of these. We're not going to take it just yet, but we're going to take communion. Communion is a lot of things. But fundamentally, communion is a behold. What kind of love is this? 
that he would make us his children, that he would that he would die for us, that he would give his body for us, that he would give his blood for us, that he, would, that he would take our sins, the perfect one would take the sin and the shame and would suffer for us and take that on himself so that we could be born of God, so that we could live like him, so that he would give us eternal life, that he would give us everlasting life, that we would have a home in heaven, that he would change us. Like it's supposed to be that moment where we stop and we just stand in awe and in amazement of what Jesus has done for us. So Christians, this week my hope and my prayer is that you would do a little bit more of that. If you're in the room and you're not a Christian, my hope and my prayer is that you would put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would not leave this room wondering and doubting and plagued with doubts because what, what did we start it with? Last verse, chapter 2, verse 28. And it all makes sense together. It's, it's, all, it's all knit together. Jesus is perfect. He takes our sins. So now if he took my sins, I shouldn't be living in those sins anymore. I should be pursuing holiness and righteousness. I should be thinking about what he did for me. The love should amaze me, and I should abide in Jesus. And if all that's true of Christians, and it should be, then chapter 2, verse 28, little children abide in him. Why? So that when he shall appear, we can have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. He says, if this is true of you, you should be able to stand up, square your shoulders, upright, and say, you know what? The thought of facing Jesus face-to-face doesn't scare me. Not because I'm all that. Because I, I know what he's done for me. I know who I am. I'm, and I'm not intimidated to pray to God. I'm not intimidated that, that Jesus would come at any moment. I have confidence, I have a boldness, I have a sure footing in my Christian walk because this is true. And if that's true of you, then it should produce you being able to square up and to say, you know what, I can live boldly for Jesus. I don't have to be timid or tepid. I don't have to be scared. I can know that I'm his, I can know that he's mine. And I can rest and that I can have a peace and that I can pillow my head at night with that. May that be us. May we be people who know who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and may that produce certainty for us. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word a bit. But most of all, thank you for being a gracious, merciful, a loving God. Lord, we know a little something about love with our human relationships, with our spouses and with our children and with our siblings and with even neighbors and friends. But this is a different kind of love that you would give so sacrificially, that you would be made manifest to take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil and foil his plans. That you would save us and redeem us and give us a new nature, that you would change us. Jesus, we want to thank you and praise you. You are, as John would say, the pure one, the perfect one, the sinless one. And we thank you for being our perfect substitute, the lamb without blemish, who was slain from the foundation of the world for the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus. This morning, if you're in the room and you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to take a moment and to praise God and to thank God and to have a behold, what manner of love is this moment? 
I know that you know God loves you, but there's a difference between knowing something and experiencing something. I'm glad you know sugar's sweet, but when you put it on your lips and it electrifies your senses, that's different. Know that God loves you, but put the love of God on your lips and let it electrify your senses. John had that moment. Have that moment right now. Thank him, praise him. If you're in the room and you're not a Christian, then you can be a Christian today. Maybe you said that you were. Maybe you got baptized. Maybe you prayed a prayer. Maybe you've been in church a long time. I frankly don't care about any of that. Ask yourself, is that true of me? Do I pass the moral test? Does my life look anything like that? Sure, there's some jogs in the river that go south, but is there a continual trajectory of north on the whole? And if not, would you be saved? Right here, right now, would you call out to Jesus and would you put your faith and your trust in him? I'm curious to know if there's someone in the room who'd be bold enough to raise your hand and say, Pastor, I do not know that Jesus is my Savior. I do not know that I am born of God, but I want to know this and I want to be born of God. Pray for me. If, if you are in the room and that's you, I don't know that I'm saved, but I want to be saved. Would you just slip your hand up? I just want to know it's you. I want to pray for you. If you want to be saved, call out to him. Pray to him. Ask him to save you. Jesus, we thank you for loving us in this way. We thank you for coming. We thank you for Christmas, that you were made manifest to take away sin and destroy those works of the devil. We thank you for being our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord. And we want, in these last final moments of the service, to worship you from the heart. Lord, if there are a few here that maybe haven't had their hearts warmed by the gospel in a little bit, I pray that that would happen. I pray that this would not be perfunctory, but that they would experience what kind of love is this. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to take communion. I want you to take your communion cups out. But we're going to have a song before we do this. Uh, Sarah sang in the first service. I told her the song was so fitting of what we're about to do in communion that I want her uh, to take a minute and sing and when she's done we're going to open these up and we're going to observe together
still swallowed hell for you and me. That should amaze us. That should strike us. I dare say that perhaps it should make us emotional. Not every second of every day, I know. But to think about that he would do that for us. This is exactly the point, actually, that Paul made in 1 Corinthians 11. It's the passage of Scripture we read every time we take communion together. And Paul says there's a way to do this and there's a way not to do this. And he actually is correcting the church and saying, you're doing it wrong. He says, you are getting together and you're thinking about the body of Jesus being broken for you and the blood of Jesus being shed for you and him taking away your sins. He says, you're doing it while sinning. You're being selfish and you're not sharing with each other and you're at each other's throats. How could you sit there and and think about what Jesus has done for you and the sin that he's taking from you and in the middle of that, just be sinning with each other? He says, it makes no sense. You can't do that. That's, That's not what communion is. So as we think about this, it's not just let it stir us. It's let it stir us and let it change us. Let it change our behavior even. Here's what he says about the body specifically in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance it up directly with some instruction about the cup and he says that after the same manner Jesus took the cup when he had supped and he said this cup is the New Testament in my blood this do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me well I hope and pray that this week not just remember for a few moments while we sing in church or while we take communion together, but that you will love and worship and be in awe of the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice for you on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on every day, really. Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning. Obviously, I want to invite you back tonight at 6 to celebrate the Stokes and send them off in a beautiful way, and uh, I hope that we'll see you there, but if not, know that I love you and I appreciate you being here today. God bless, church. You're dismissed. Hey church, thanks for coming today. It would not have been the same without you. If this is your first time, or maybe you haven't been in a while, we're glad you're here and chose to worship with us. One of our pastors would love to meet you at the welcome desk after the service, and if you haven't already received one, we have a small gift and a Bible for you too. Check out these incredible opportunities on how you can become more involved here at Harvest. Our next intro to Harvest class is today after the 1030 service in the cafeteria. Here you can learn more about our mission and our church family and how you can be a part of it. Snacks and childcare will be provided. What happens when you really want to get to know more of the friendly faces you see here at Harvest, but life has been very busy? Our Fellowship Sunday on August 14th is your chance. We invite you to break things up a bit and get to know more of the church family by attending one of these hangout options. We've got softball, volleyball, and in-home hangouts. Each will be running from two to four. We hope you'll jump in on the fun and get to know more of the church family in a super fun way. 
be sure to register on the church website. We'll hold an interest meeting on Sunday, August 14th in room 400 regarding our fall missions trip opportunity. A team from Harvest will partner with Pastor Dave Barnhouse and Vision Zambia from November 7th to the 18th. There's much work to do on this new construction on an orphanage, installing solar panels, distributing food and other supplies to remote villages, and much more. If you're interested in learning about serving in Zambia, please attend the interest meeting. Golfers and wannabe golfers, mark your calendars. The 15th annual Sports Classic Golf Outing, benefiting the student athletes at Harvest Baptist Academy, will take place on Saturday, September 10th at the Lynx at Spring Church. This outing is the main source of income for the sports program here at Harvest. All skill levels are welcome and invited to sign up to play. We're also looking for some businesses to help us out as sponsors for this event. If you want more information, please stop by the welcome desk and grab a pamphlet. The evangelism team will be sharing the gospel outside of Heinz Stadium, Akershore Stadium, on Saturday, August 13th from 6 to 7.30. Please stop by the welcome desk for more information. Join us tonight as Seth Stokes leads the evening workshop. He'll be speaking about missions and the unreached people groups. The workshop will be held from 6 to 7.30 and will include a celebration for Seth and Nicole as they prepare to return to the mission field. Refreshments will be provided. We would love to keep everyone up to date with all that's going on here at Harvest. If you don't have access to our weekly emails, feel free to pick up an information sheet at the Welcome Desk on Sundays. Thanks for spending time with us today. Remember to follow us on social media so you can stay connected with all that's happening in and around our church throughout the week. Until next time, have a great week.